those people. Looking good with those mustaches. Amen. Oh, well, happy Father's Day, everyone. All you dads out there and, and moms who put up with us dads. We love you. Uh, there is a special treat, uh, not just for the dads, but for all of y'all. Uh, in the lobby after service, we will have some dad donuts. Now, dads should get first pick, I'm just saying. So, you know, you might have to wrangle your kids a little bit to, to make sure that all the dads get a shot. You know, it's something delicious. So, uh, well, hey, I just, I want to start by just praising and thanking our Heavenly Father for, uh, one, being the dad that we've always needed. Because uh, some of us have had great, phenomenal dads. Some of us have had rough relationships with dads. And some of us have had dads that just haven't been around. And so I think it's important for us to just stop and thank the Lord, uh, who, is, who is our perfect Heavenly Father and who, who, who is that outlet that we need to look to when this day is filled with either joy or sorrow for some of us, right? So let's, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, on this special Father's Day, it's just a joy to acknowledge that you are the Father we've always longed for and needed. Even our most loving and engaged fathers are just a picture of what it means to be your beloved children. That it can never be to us what you alone are. And our most broken and irresponsible fathers can never rob our hearts of the joys of knowing and having deep relationship with you. A relationship that allows us to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. So God, we thank you for adopting us through the finished work of Jesus. Thank you for freeing us from slavery to sin and giving us a spirit of sonship, a place in your family, and an inheritance that will never spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. Thank you for the promise to complete the work you began in us and for always and only disciplining us in love, even when it hurts. Father, we thank you for the grace to forgive our earthly fathers who are sinners just like us. We pray that you would help us find peace for those who have broken our trust, hurt us, and misrepresented you. Heal us and free us from the bondage of those painful memories. We thank you for the grace to acknowledge our own failings as parents and for promising us the strength we need to humble ourselves before our children and trust you to show your redemption in our families. Lastly, fathers, we want to thank you for the spiritual fathers you've given us, the dads of grace, who help us discover more and more the love of Jesus and point us to you around every turn. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, my name is Brandon McConaughey. I know some of you guys are coming back for the summer. You snowbirds, welcome. And uh, last week, I had the privilege of going to my best friend's wedding. It wasn't a movie I watched. I actually went, oh, you guys are killing me. <laughs> I actually got to go uh, down to Southern California and witness uh, my buddy who's been my friend for 31 years uh, get remarried after just a, a long time of hurt. And so it was just a beautiful thing to see the joy and uh, reconnect with old friends, people I've known for 20, 30 years. And uh, I just thank the Lord that he is a God of second chances and restoration and all that good stuff. Amen? So I want to just say thank you to the elder team and to Elena 
uh, for leading you guys last week. The service was amazing. And uh, I'm just thankful that I get to be a part of a church that allows me to go and do that. And uh, I know you guys are well taken care of. So, well, and I want to say hi to my dad. He watches online. Hi, Pops. I'll call you later. I don't call him before I get here because I'm like, like, you know, 6.30 when I show up. So I feel like that's rude. I should let him sleep in, you know. Nah. <laughs> well, today, you guys are going to be so excited about this. We are starting a five-week series through the book of Leviticus. Yes. Okay, now be, now be honest. Now be honest. How many of you have gone through Leviticus before? Oh, oh. Okay, I did not expect that. I, I, was, I was thinking some of you would be shaking your fists at me like Leviticus, really? Well, I am really excited about this series. We're calling it Lambs, Levites, and Laws, which are kind of the three main themes that run through this entire book. Uh, we're going to look at the Old Testament sacrificial system, right, hence lambs, uh, the priesthood of Israel, Levites, and the law of Moses, which law, that, that one's easy. And every week my goal is to connect those themes to their New Testament reality. You see, all these themes in the book of Leviticus point us to a greater reality found in the New Testament, something that points us to Jesus Christ himself. And we're going to cover topics like sin and atonement, the priesthood, redemption, purity, worship, and obedience. And I'm so excited to go through this book. And even though it's just kind of a five-week skimming of the surface, I would encourage you over these next, this next month or so, uh, read this incredible book. And not, not just as a, a, a bunch of laws and rules that you, you're like plotting through. Oh, yeah, he's sacrificing again, all right. But to actually ask the Holy Spirit to open your hearts and your eyes to see what these beautiful truths represent for us today. Now, I want, let me give you a little bit of background about the book itself. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. So if you're looking for it right now, just go to Genesis and then just two over. Simple. As part of this section of scripture we call the Pentateuch, right? And the Pentateuch is just a fancy word for the first five books of the Bible, the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And the Pentateuch comprises the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so this word Leviticus in Hebrew literally means of the Levites. It's certainly not a very creative name. Of the Levites. So when you read the title, it gives us a picture about what this book is about. Because it's simply the instructions for the priests of Israel who were of the tribe of Levi. And how they were to carry out their sacrificial and religious duties. So these, this book is instructions for priests. Now... Again, you might be thinking, like, that doesn't sound interesting at all. How does that even apply to me? I'm not a Levitical priest. Why would I read Leviticus? And it's easy for us to look at this book of law 
written for a bunch of priests and, and have a desire to skip right over it. Like, you know, like, it's like the genealogies. When you get there, you're like, oh, yeah, that's a long list of names. We're going through that one. But everything in Scripture is given for our edification. Everything in Scripture points us to the truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so I want us to just think about it as we go into this series, not as, oh, we're going to plod through this book of instructions for priests, but as an opportunity to see a shadow of God's redemptive plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what this entire book is. It's a shadow of God's plan of salvation for you and I. In fact, Paul tells us this in Colossians 2. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He's talking about laws, Old Testament laws. He says, these laws are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, we read this. It says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Again, he's talking about these Levitical laws. These laws serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. All right, and if you weren't convinced yet, one more. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. These verses tell us that everything in the Old Testament points us to a New Testament reality. This is a, it's a discipline we have to learn, church, that as we read the Old Testament, we're always thinking, what is the New Testament reality of what God was doing? Those verses aren't in there just as, as interesting stories or, you know, for that culture back in that time and in that place just for Israel. They're for us as well because they all point us to Christ. So whenever you read scripture, we must remember that every copy must have an original. Every shadow must have a substance. And every symbol must point us to a reality. And that reality is and always will be Jesus Christ himself. And so my hope is that we will look at these shadows, these, these laws, these rules, these instructions for the priests of Israel. And we will see Christ Jesus on his throne. And that means this incredible book of Leviticus is for us today. So with that in mind, let's jump into Leviticus chapter 1. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand this morning. Our ushers would love to bring you a copy of God's Word. And as you flip to Leviticus chapter 1, let me ask the Lord to, to bless our time and teach us through his precious Word. Would you bow your heads with me? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible book that you've given Moses. And you, you gave it not just for the people of Israel, but for us. And so I pray for the realities 
found in this book, these, these shadows to point us to the reality of Jesus, that we would see clearly who he is and what he came to do because of this incredible word you've shown us. So teach us, we pray, Holy Spirit. Mold us and make us into the image of Christ. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. So as we jump into this book, I want to start off with the central theme of the entire book of Leviticus, right? It's always good to kind of find what's the verse that points us to, the, to kind of the overarching theme of this entire book. And you'll find that in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. I'll put it up on the screen for you. And it might be something you want to just highlight in your Bible or underline. But this is what Moses is told by Yahweh. He says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now this word holy in Hebrew is kodesh, right? It's translated as holy in English, and it is used more than 150 times in the book of Leviticus alone. Holiness is a key and central theme of this book. You see, the foundation of the Israelite nation is that God gave them these priests so that they would learn to be holy as God is holy. That they would learn to worship and, and, and get to this place where their lives were changed because of their faith and their trust in their God. And everything we know about holiness is must and always be based on the character of God's holiness himself. So today we're going to look a little bit at God's holiness. Because that's the foundation for understanding this theme of holiness going throughout the book of Leviticus. Now Jerry Bridges reminds us this. He says, as used in scripture, holiness describes both the majesty of God and the purity of and moral perfection of his nature. Holiness is one of his attributes. That is, holiness is an essential part of the nature of God. His holiness is as, necess is as necessary as his existence, or as necessary, for example, as his wisdom or omniscience. Just as he cannot but know what is right, so he cannot do but do what is right. God will always and only ever be infinitely perfect in every way. Right? We have to start with that foundation. He is holy because perfection is part of his nature. It's part of his character. What happens if we have a God who is not holy? He's kind of sad and pathetic. And then he becomes unworthy of worship. And then all this falls apart. God must be holy and perfect for us to begin to even fathom how we should worship him and understand him. And because we have all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, our sin has separated us from a right relationship with our Father. So the book of Leviticus is really given to us as an opportunity to be reconciled to God. And it's a reminder that God loves us so much that he doesn't leave us in our sinful state. He doesn't leave it up to us to fix the broken relationship. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. Now, the word sin also occurs an abundance of times throughout the book of Leviticus. And at the heart of the Hebrew word's meaning is this idea of missing the mark. You've probably heard that before. Sin means missing the mark. 
but it also can mean a failure to attain something or to be out of harmony with someone. Now, in the case of our own sin, it is our relationship with God that has been harmed. Adam fell in the garden, sin infected humanity, and our relationship with God the Father was forever damaged. But it's because of God's perfection and holiness that he's created this system, this sacrificial system in which we can be restored in our broken relationship with him. And I'm going to get into some of those details here in a few moments. But if you look, if you just flip through the first five chapters of the book of Leviticus, what do you notice? Somebody shout it out. What is the common thread? Offerings, or another way to say sacrifice or worship. This idea of offerings and sacrifice is what the first five chapters of the book of Leviticus are all about. You have chapter one, burnt offerings. Chapter two is grain offerings. Chapter three is peace offerings. Chapter four is sin offerings. And chapter five is the guilt offerings. Now each of these offerings is about a correcting a wrong that damaged the relationship between Israel and their heavenly father. Sin entered in, it created some kind of rift, and each of these specific offerings was God's way of saying, here's an opportunity for you to be reconciled to me. Now Leviticus 5.10 tells us this really clearly. And this is a phrase that you'll actually see uh, if you read chapters 1 through 5, which we're not going to do, because, well, that would take the whole time. Um, but if you look at this, if you read that later on, this phrase in chapter 5, verse 10 is repeated again and again and again. And the, and the phrase is, and the priest shall make atonement for him, for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. What are all these sacrifices for? Forgiveness, redemption, atonement. At the beginning of the book of Leviticus, the people of Israel are at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we know in Exodus, Moses went up, he got the law, and he comes on back down, and he's shining like the sun. That would have been cool to see, just for the record. And here in Leviticus, the glory of the Lord has just filled the tabernacle. This, uh, we call it the tent of meeting. And God now tells Moses to instruct the Levites, this tribe of priests, on how the people of Israel must sacrifice, worship, uh, about ceremonial cleanliness, about the Day of Atonement, about feasts and holy days, about the year of Jubilee, so on and so forth. And Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we tell, we're told this. It says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. And she'll bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now, I'm giving us this just one example, but basically as you go through the first five chapters, this pattern repeats again and again and again. It's the same pattern, just with different nuances. 
But the issue we're really dealing with here is because God is holy and we are desperately separated from him because of our sin, this sacrificial system was instituted by God as a grace, as a grace and a mercy for the people of Israel because it provided them forgiveness through the shedding of blood. Now we're going to, again, dive deeper into some of these things because I told you before that everything in Leviticus is a shadow of some greater reality that is to come. So start thinking about what I'm talking about there, right? Because everyone looks at the sacrificial system of Israel and we think, well, what a bloody mess, right? What a, what a, just a, it would have been so tedious. Every time you, you wanted to come and worship the Lord, you had to bring these animals, you had to make sure they were perfect, without blemish. You have to bring them to the priest, sacrifice it, and then you did that until the next time you sinned, <laughs> which might have been a few hours from then, right? Like, I don't, who knows? But this whole idea centers on this truth that God forgives our sin through the shedding of blood. Blood is required to make restitution for sin. And I think it's interesting because we, we think about God and his wrath. Anybody struggle with the wrath of God? I'm the only one. Okay, that's okay. Did you know that wrath is not a character trait of God? It's not. Wrath is not part of who God is. Because when sin ceases to exist, wrath will no longer exist. So it cannot be part of who God is. Wrath is a necessary function of God's holiness. Because God is perfect and holy, sin must be punished. By definition, he cannot allow it or he would then not be perfect. So wrath is a necessary function of God's holiness, but it is not a character trait of who God is. And I don't know about you, but I wrestled with that truth this week. And I thought, man, there will come a day when God's wrath will cease. And I thought, wow, I don't know that I ever really processed that before. But it gave me great hope. I want to I I wrestle with this just a little bit. Because D.A. Carson makes this incredible uh, quote. And I want to share this with you. Because the wrath of God must punish sin. He says this, he says, wrath, unlike love, is not one of the intrinsic perfections of God. Rather, it is a function of God's holiness against sin. Where there is no sin, there is no wrath. But there will always be love in God. Where God in his holiness confronts his image bearers in their rebellion, there must be wrath. Or God is not the jealous God he claims to be and his holiness is impugned. The price of diluting God's wrath is diminishing God's holiness. So again, God's wrath is this byproduct of being perfect and without sin. It exists because he is holy. And when humanity fell in the garden and our relationship with God was critically broken in such a way that the whole of human existence was affected, God desired to draw near to us, but he was unable. 
because his presence cannot be in the presence of sin. Or it would destroy us. He wanted to make his home amongst his people. You realize that was the whole point of the garden in the first place. He created the garden. He created Adam and Eve. And where was God? Walking in the garden with them. His desire was to be amongst his people. But when sin entered in, it severed that relationship in such a drastic way that God had to be separate from us. His holiness became a problem for sinners because his holiness and our sin can never coexist. We have several examples of this in Scripture, right? You have prophets coming before the Lord, and he's saying, look, if you stand in my presence, you'll be obliterated because your sin can't be in my presence, right? Even Moses, Moses, when he's, when he's asked the Lord, let me see your glory. Let me see the front side of your face. And God's like, no way. You would be, poof, in an instant gone. And he covers him up in a rock and he lets him see, I don't know what the word in Hebrew, it's, it's strange. It's like a, the tail end, like a, com, like a comet. The, the, the extra glory that resided after, you know. And this is our reality as sinful humans. That, that if we remain in our sin, we can no, no longer be in the presence of God. We have no hope for a relationship with him. So in order to come into God's presence, in order to restore that broken relationship, we must be made perfectly clean. And each of the sacrifices we see here in Leviticus chapter 1 through 5 are a shadow of Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. And I'm going to say this again and again, the entire sacrificial system is a shadow of everything Jesus came to do. I'm going to give you a side note. And this is going to be for you eschatological folks. And you can wrestle with this and we can disagree and I love you. But I'm going to share it anyways because this never made sense to me. If you were waiting for the temple to be rebuilt in Israel, that makes no sense. Why would God reinstitute the sacrificial system that was broken and flawed when we already have the reality of Christ Jesus as our perfect sacrifice? We don't need a new temple. The temple is here, and it is being built as the body of Christ is built up into his kingdom, his temple. So we can, again, we can, that's just a total side note. This is not a deal breaker for any of them. Uh, but if you want to talk about that further, hit me up. I can't help it sometimes. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know we're still getting to know each other. But, you know, sometimes you just got to throw the fishing pole out and see what you're really in. I, you know. But I think this, this whole idea of the sacrifices here in, here in Leviticus is important for us today to begin to understand both the holiness of God and what his purpose was for all of this in the first place. And again, I would encourage you, I'm, I'm not reading all five chapters because, again, it would just take too long. But I would encourage you to read these first five chapters of Leviticus and ask yourself, what is God trying to show us? 
You see, these laws that were written here in Leviticus were established and given to Moses by the same God who sent his son to die on the cross for you and I. As we begin to understand these principles of Old Testament sacrificial worship, we begin to see a holy God who we can then draw near to, who come, we can come into his presence and glorify and worship him for who he is. So I want to just wrestle a little bit with the sacrificial system that God established and, and what some of those things mean. Now, animal sacrifice was not unique to the kingdom of Israel. This was a common practice in most religions in the ancient Near East. Now, most animal sacrifices were done to appease a God that they felt was angry at them or, you know, to keep him happy from destroying their land or whatever it may be. But the sacrifices in Israel were given for a different goal. They were an integral part of God's unfolding plan of redemption. Now, the, in the opening chapter of Leviticus, there's actually two different Hebrew words for sacrifice. Now, the first one is actually literally means sacrifice, what we would think of putting something on an altar and killing it, right? But that's actually not the word used most often in the book of Leviticus. The word that's used most often is the word korban. And the word korban in Hebrew means that which is brought near. So the people of Israel, when they brought a sacrifice to the Lord, they must also bring with them something Corban, some, a coming near thing, something that allowed them to draw near to the presence of God. Now it's interesting to think about, God waited to establish this sacrificial system until after the tabernacle, this tent of meeting was built. Right? You know, Israel had been wandering in the wilderness and during that time, they still made sacrifices, but there wasn't a specific set of regulations and guidelines to, to show them how to do that in a way that honored the Lord. So the Lord waits until they kind of establish themselves. They build this tent of meeting. And then he tells Moses, here's these instructions for how these sacrifices should work. Israel brings their sacrifices to one location now, and they follow the same procedures for every sacrifice. And if you notice as you read, it's very specific. First you do this, then you do this, then you do this, and on you go. And every animal used in the sacrifice had to be unblemished or blameless. Now, I'm going to just read us one example. Again, all these examples kind of repeat themselves. But Leviticus 1, chapter 10, or verses 10 through 13, are a good example of what the process of sacrifice entails. Just to give you a picture. He says, if his gift for a burnt offering, so this is burnt offerings, is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Well, again, this is a just a picture of... Now, y'all picturing this now, huh? 
thinking like, oh, that, that would have been, if you lived in this time, this was how you were worshiping Yahweh. Just for the record, you should thank the Lord all the time that ours is a lot cleaner than that. It's good. But the death of these animals communicates a powerful reality for you and I. That humanity's choice to do what is right in our own eyes has so completely separated us from Yahweh that the only way for us to re-enter his presence is to lay down life so that we can receive life. Did you hear me on that? The only way for us to re-enter God's presence is to lay down life so that you and I can receive life. This is the shadow I'm talking about. This beautiful reality. Because the animals that were sacrificed symbolized God's divine judgment on the sin of the people. Because again, God in his holiness must punish sin. And the symbolism of laying hands on this sacrificial animal, confessing sin, and then the ritual slaughter of this animal conveys the idea of deliverance by substitution. Something or someone took your place, paid your penalty. Israel's forgiveness was secured by a substitutional sacrifice. Now this sacrificial system tells us all the ways that humanity's relationship with God has been terribly altered. And each of these sacrifices spelled out, listed in Leviticus 1-5, through 5, shows us these various ways that sin breaks our relationship with God and with others. And shows us God's desire to be restored to his people through the work of redemption. So first we have the burnt offering, which includes the burning up of the whole animal. Provided for the atonement or covering over of human sin before God. And the next one is the grain offering. Uh, by the way, uh, the grain offering always had to have salt in it. So salt your bread, people. Makes it taste better. And God said to. But the grain offering was always associated with a gift or a tribute. Right? Like those given to a king to ensure an alliance. It's an allegiance thing. My allegiance is yours. Now the peace offering involved the sacramental sharing of a meal between the worshiper and the priest. That's interesting. Because it's not just about a relationship with God, it was also about a relationship with these priests. And it reflected the mended relationship between the people and their God. And then the, the sin offering, or sometimes they called it the purification offering... That focused on the defilement of sin for the believer and the need for purification. This is what you did when you blew it, right? And then the guilt offering, that one responded to the need for a debt to be repaid to God so that the divine and human relationship can be again made whole. So each of these five sacrificial uh, offerings that are here in Leviticus 1 through 5 give us a... a highlight a different aspect of God's plan of redemption for humanity. See, we often think like, oh, I sinned and then my relationship with God is broken. But how was it broken? Was it physical? Was it emotional? Was it your allegiance was divided? There's a lot of different ways in which you can sin against God. 
And all of these sacrifices offer atonement and allegiance restoration with the king of the universe. Our defilement is purified, our debts are paid. And that's all a foreshadowing of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus didn't come and just forgive one or two of your sins. He forgave you of all your sins. Past, present, future. Now the goal of all the sacrificial offerings in the book of Leviticus is atonement. And atonement is just a, a, a Hebrew word. We get the word kippur is uh, the word in Hebrew, right? The Jews celebrate Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. So kippur means atonement. And that word in Hebrew means two different things. It can either mean to repay a debt, something you owe, or it can mean to purify, to make clean. So whether we're talking about the Levitical sacrifices or Jesus' death on the cross, atonement is not simply an event that happens when something blameless dies. It's the life of a blameless representative making payment through the giving of its life. Because the payment for sin is blood. Leviticus 17.11 tells us this truth. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The laying down of life gives us life. Atonement is really God's gift to humanity. It's his working in and through Jesus Christ for our benefit. And atonement is the evidence of his saving grace poured out on our lives. Oswald Chambers says it this way. He says, we trample the blood of the Son of God if we think we are forgiven because we are sorry for our sins. You should wrestle with that sentence just for a minute. The only explanation for the forgiveness of God and for the unfathomable depth of his forgetting is the death of Jesus Christ. Our repentance is merely the outcome of our personal realization of the atonement which he has worked out for us. It does not matter who or what we are, there is absolute reinstatement into God by the death of Jesus Christ and by no other way. Not because Jesus Christ pleads, but because he died. It is not earned, but accepted. All the pleading which deliberately refuses to recognize the cross is of no avail. It is battering at a door other than the one that Jesus has opened. Our Lord does not pretend we are all right when we are all wrong. The atonement is a propitiation whereby God, through the death of Jesus, makes an unholy man holy. I don't know about you, but I had to read that about 14 times this week. And just chew and chew and chew. And I'll try and post that maybe on somewhere. I don't know. It's worth wrestling with. Because the reality, church, is that you and I don't have to fix our broken lives and clean ourselves up before coming to God. I hear this from unbelievers all the time. I'll come to church when I get myself kind of back on track. What does that mean? You're a broken sinner. You're a mess. So am I. Come to church. Come meet Jesus. The only way you're going to get back on track is if he restores you, redeems you, makes you whole again. You'll never get there on your own. 
But don't let, don't let unbelievers give that to you as an excuse. We can't solve our sin problems without the help of God working in and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what the book of Leviticus and the entire Old Testament really shows us. That there is no way we could ever accomplish a right relationship with God on our own. Because as you begin to read the rules in the Old Testament, you're going to think, I could never do that. And that whole, that's the whole point. You can't. You need someone to redeem you outside of you of their own volition. And that person obviously is Jesus Christ. Our sacrifices can never mend a broken relationship with our creator. But God loves us so much that he gave us his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life in him. God initiated cleaning up our sin problem of his own volition. And he sent his son to die in our place so that you and I could have eternal life in him. This is why the writer of Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. And we read verse 1 at the beginning, but I want to just go through this again. He says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Sacrifices can never save us. We can never receive redemption through our works. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins every year. It's basically saying, look, the sin's just going to keep on coming back. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Because no matter how perfect you think that animal is, it's still an imperfect animal. We need a perfect sacrifice. The sacrifices offered in Leviticus could never pay for the sins of the people. They cannot pay for the sins of the people now. We have no redemption, no forgiveness and no atonement apart from Jesus Christ and his saving work on our behalf. This is the reality for Israel as well. They weren't saved because they obeyed Yahweh. They were saved by putting their faith and their hope in Yahweh and looking forward to the reality that Jesus would come and redeem them. We look back, they looked forward, but the center is always Christ. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. There is no way to go to the Father except through him. His sacrifice has redeemed us from the penalty of sin and death. It's restored our relationship with our Father. And it gives us new life through the perfect life that he lived. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together and we'll jump into communion. <coughs> Father God, we just begin to, just begun to scratch the surface of these shadows, these realities. And I pray that as we wrestle with, with what you were doing and how you were revealing yourself to us in this book, that you would show us that you were a God who was not content to leave us in our sinful state, but you made a way that we could have restoration, redemption through your son, Jesus. We thank you that these, these sacrifices point us to him. And may we realize the depth of our sin 
the immensity of your holiness and the need for a right relationship with you. And may we seek to find that only through your precious son, Jesus, and all he's given us. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen.